you have your Bible with you or you would like to use one in the back of the pew in front of you, turn with me to the gospel according to Mark for the last time. The gospel according to Mark, chapter 16. We will be reading verses 1 to 8, and we will stop there. If you want to talk about that sometime, I'd love to. I'm not going to do that and take much more time. But we are going to end the book of Mark thinking about the resurrection of our King Jesus and what that means for us as we follow him. With all that in mind, let's read Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. This is the word of the Lord. When Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I think we should have a moment of silence for Thanksgiving. Remember that holiday? Some of us, November 1st, the day after Halloween, already have our Christmas decorations up and lights around the house and Christmas trees ready to go and Christmas carols on the radio ready to celebrate the most wonderful time of year. And we have killed Thanksgiving. It is just another day in the anticipation for the real holiday, apparently. Well, not so fast. I really like Thanksgiving. I just like Thanksgiving. That's it. I like turkey. I like sweet potato casserole. I like all the food that comes with it. I like football. I like doing nothing on a Thursday. I like Thanksgiving, and I want to keep it. One of my friends even said that the only reason we have Thanksgiving, this was a joke, was we are thankful for Christmas. As we get ready to celebrate Advent in the next few weeks, this passage shows us actually why we can be thankful at all, why we can be thankful for Christmas, why we can celebrate with all our heart that Jesus was born in a manger, because friends, that is not where the story stops. Jesus was born to live and to die, and Jesus was born to die and rise again from the grave. And that is why we can celebrate it all. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, as Paul talks about the resurrection in verse 14, he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He goes on to say that if Jesus has not been raised from the tomb, if Mark 16 is not true, then we are misrepresenting God and lying about him, saying that he has conquered death. And we are still in our sins. We are not forgiven. And we still need a payment to make us right with God. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if we should have any kind of party, any kind of holiday, it should be a pity party. Because people who go to church and believe in some dead king are of most to be pitied. As George Ladd writes, Paul hangs all of Christian truth and the entire Christian doctrine on the fact of the resurrection. Friends, if there is no resurrection, then the next few weeks, Advent, Christmas, the holidays, are not a celebration. But because Jesus is alive, we cannot celebrate enough. Can I just speak to that for a second? Some of y'all need some help celebrating. Some of y'all need permission to have a little fun. Jesus conquered death and your sins are forgiven. You can smile. And you can have a good time and be holly and jolly and merry and bright. It's all right. Because Jesus rose again from the grave. I was telling this story earlier this morning. This is who I am. You've seen it in action, so like I'm not shocking some of you. But one of the things I like to celebrate is Memphis Tigers basketball. It's where I went to college. When I was a student there, John Calipari was the coach. They had this song they would play during timeouts. And I love to sing it. I love to celebrate where I was at. Say, I'm so glad I go to the U of M. And kept going. Well, one time that there was a timeout, and I'm like right next to the team. I'm in the student section. I'm right there, and John Calipari is talking to all these future NBA players about what they need to do, but the band starts playing, and I get up on my seat, and I start singing so much that John Calipari and all the team stop, turn around, and watch me finish the song. I'm not kidding. That actually happened. But friends, you've seen it. As much as I love the Memphis Tigers, Jesus Christ is what I like to celebrate the most. And I'm not afraid to stand on one of these pews in front of God and everybody and celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. And listen, some of you, when Patrick Mahomes busts out of the tunnel, you do that too. Friends, Jesus busts out the grave. And he deserves some celebrating. He deserves some fun. He deserves some smiles and some rejoicing. This season. That's why we meet every Sunday, you know, because it is the Lord's day, the day Jesus rose from the grave. John Calvin wrote, Let us remember that no one is truly persuaded of the coming resurrection unless he is seized with wonder and ascribes to the power of God its due glory. So, what he's saying, it doesn't matter if you intellectually believe that Jesus rose from the grave. It matters if your heart is captured by that truth so that it changes your entire life. 
and you're captured with wonder. Like when you go to the Grand Canyon, you can't stop your gut from just groaning ooh and ah. That first time you see the ocean, you don't have to be taught to say, wow. And friend, we need to look at the empty tomb of Jesus Christ that way and let some praise come about our, out of our lips because of what Jesus did on that Sunday morning. He deserves our wonder. You've heard of the wonders of the world, the seven ancient wonders. There's only one left. They've all crumbled to the ground. Only the pyramids survive, and they're going to fall to the ground one day too. But the good news of the gospel is that our hope endures. Peter wrote in 1 Peter that our living hope through the resurrection of Jesus is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's worth some wonder. And so this morning, I want to walk through this passage and show you the seven wonders of the resurrection. Wonders that will never fade, that will always be true, always be worth celebrating. In eternity, we will sing about these wonders forever and a day. The first wonder I want you to see is the truth of the resurrection. Read with me verses 1 and 2 again. Mark writes, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. You know, when you get caught in a lie, when you're trying to lie, you make every detail work in your favor. You t you're, you're already lying, so you don't care about twisting the truth to make yourself look as great as possible. And you would say, I would never do that. Hey, what about when you're building a resume? How easy is it to just polish up the truth a little bit about your work experience and what you've accomplished and frame it in just the right way that you're going to look amazing for that future employer? If Mark is trying to do that and polish up the resume of Jesus Christ, he's doing it wrong. He's not going to get the job. We talked about this last week, but the first way you see that is in the gender of the witnesses. This is the third time in eight verses that Mark names three ladies. He never names people, but he names these ladies three times because they are living proof that this really happened. Their testimony in court wouldn't be accepted, but Mark presents them as key witnesses because they actually are. The second way we see Mark present the truth of the resurrection is when he exposes their intentions. Or really, he exposes their unbelief. What are they doing? They're on the way not to meet a risen Savior. They've brought spices to anoint a dead body. Jesus has said over and over again, I will rise again. And when the only people who visit the tomb go, they're not there to meet him who, as somebody who's kept his word. They're just going like a regular graveyard visit. And third, if you look at the end of this passage, at their response, it proves that this happened. They respond with fear, not celebration. They're told to go and they disobey. Mark wouldn't put any of that in this passage if it didn't happen. 
One of the reasons it's so confusing is because we would never write the story like that. They would obey, they would celebrate, and go tell everyone. Friends, what does this show us? This is an important truth. The early church did not polish this story up so that we would have something nice to believe in. It really happened. Jesus really rose from the grave. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, Paul said that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. And as Mark is probably the earliest gospel writer in the New Testament, it's true there too. These three women are probably still alive, and Mark is putting them in this passage over and over and over again as a way of saying, you don't believe me, go ask the three ladies. You see them in church. Jesus really rose from the grave. Second wonder I want you to see in this passage is the power of the resurrection. Look at verses 3 to 5. They were saying to one another, the women, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. If I could be really honest with you, I relate to these women right here in this moment. I am really good at anticipating the worst case scenario. If I have a meeting or if there's an important decision to make, I spend most of my mental energy thinking about the negative scenarios that could come up and the tough conversations that I'm going to have to have, and I'll stay up all night thinking about them, and they've not actually happened. And guess what? I get to those conversations and meetings, And most of the time, they don't. The women are worried about how to move the stone. It's kind of funny. They hadn't thought about that before they set out on the trip. But they're worried about nothing. Because God has already moved the stone. The way Mark writes it, this is a divine act. God has moved. God has worked But the greatest demonstration of power in this passage is what they don't see. They get to the tomb, and there is no body. Jesus is not there. Peter tells us how that happened. In Acts chapter 2, as he's preaching, verse 24, Peter says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. There is no way on earth under God's hand, that Jesus could have stayed dead. It was impossible. Watch. This isn't just a fact to know. What if I told you that if you belong to Jesus and you have died and been raised to walk in newness of life, you have that power in you. You have access to that kind of omnipotence that makes death impossible living inside of you right now. If that is true, what problem in your life is too big for God? That's why Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 19 to 20 that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe 
according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul prays, I just wish you would know what kind of resurrection power you already have. Not that you need to pray for, but what you have in Christ. I'm talking to me, I'm talking to you. Instead of being anxious and anticipating the worst case scenario, expect and let God demonstrate his resurrection power in your life. Might not always happen the way you want, but he will work for his glory, just like he did with Christ. Third wonder I want you to see in this passage is the hope of the resurrection. Verse 6, the angel says to the women, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. As we get ready to celebrate Advent next week, think of the parallels in this passage. It sounds like a Christmas story. There is a heavenly messenger dressed in white bringing tidings of joy and peace to people who respond to the good news with fear. But this isn't Bethlehem and we're not at some cradle in a manger. We are in a grave in Jerusalem where Jesus becomes what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, the firstborn from the dead. We can celebrate that Jesus was born in a manger because Jesus was born in a grave. When the angel speaks, in one sentence, he, he gives us the gospel in a nutshell. You can see in verse 6, you have the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Virtually the same gospel nugget that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. When Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I know that some of you really like this song. It's pretty good. Oh, holy night. Why can we sing about the thrill of hope? That makes the weary world rejoice. You can only sing about that thrill of hope because the holy night led to this holy, holy, holy morning. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angels' voices. Christ is the Lord because he has risen. He has risen indeed. Friend, I'm wondering about some of you. I'm wondering, is that truth in your soul? Is that truth carrying you? Do you have that wonder at the magic? Do you have that hope? This good news gets even better. Because we also see the grace of the resurrection. Look at verse 7. The angel says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. 
there you will see him. If you've been with us through Book of Mark, you know the background of this. But the night before, less than 20, I guess it's been a couple of nights actually, we're now at Sunday morning, Thursday night, when Judas betrays Jesus in the garden, Mark makes clear every disciple fled. Every one of them sinned against Jesus and betrayed him, but Peter did it the worst. Peter denies he even knows Jesus at all three times. Peter backstabs God on the worst night of his life. How would you like that on your resume? But don't miss what happens here. This is probably my favorite part of this passage. When Jesus comes out of the grave, he buries Peter's past. When Jesus rises again, he doesn't look at Peter as the backstabber, as the denier. He looks at Peter as his future apostle who's going to go on mission and make things happen for his glory. Friends, the cross and the resurrection is not the reward for the holy rollers. It is the grace for the unholy and ungodly sinners. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was raised to make us right. So friend, the song is wrong. It is not. Come all ye faithful. The call of the cross and the resurrection is come all ye unfaithful. Come all ye unrighteous. Come all ye heathen pagan sinners. That's why Mark says at the beginning of this book, chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Friends, you want to celebrate something this year? It's this good news. You don't have to be a good person to know Christ. You don't have to be a good Christian who follows all the good church rules to get your way into heaven. You have to recognize all the ways that you went off the wrong way on your own and turned away from Jesus and the fact that he came for you, obeyed for you, did everything for you, and died for the ways that you denied and rebelled against him. And if you would just turn from that life and that resume of sin against him and put your trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross and in his resurrection, God will look at you as if you are Jesus. And God will look at the unrighteous as if they are righteous because they are righteous. Because Jesus has accomplished our salvation. You want something to celebrate? Believe that. If that sounds too good to be true and you're not sure about it, I want to show you one more wonder. The faithfulness of the resurrection. Again, look at verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. One of the hardest parts of the holidays that we will start to feel this week, and some of us will feel for the rest of the month, 
or the feelings we have when we see the seats empty that should be filled by the people in our life. But they are not there because this world is broken and our relationships are broken and our homes are broken. Without going into too much detail, my family is going to feel that. Two of my nieces are going to have to experience the holidays like they never have before. Your family, your spouse, your kids, your parents, your friends, your neighbors might stab you in the back. They might be unfaithful. They might disown you. They might desert you. Your church family might do the same. But what Jesus Christ did on Easter Sunday is to prove that he's not like any of them. He is faithful to his word. Jesus keeps every promise. In Mark chapter 8, 9, 10, and 14, Jesus said, I will rise again. And in Mark chapter 16, he did. He is the God who never lies. He is the one John sees in Revelation on the white horse, the one John calls the one who is faithful and true. He is the friend who will never leave you nor forsake you. He is the one Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. What prayer are you constantly bringing to God? Barely holding back the tears. What promise are you waiting on God to fulfill? Friend, don't stop waiting. Jesus is faithful. He'll do it his time. He'll do it his way. But he will keep his word. The next wonder of the resurrection I want you to see in verse 7 and 8 is the mission of the resurrection. In verse 7, we'll just read a few words there. But go tell his disciples and Peter. If you've been here long enough, you know about the roundabout. If you haven't been here that long, let me just clue you in real quick. The gospel is like Stone's Corner. Once you get into that roundabout, the only thing you can't do is stop. You've got to keep moving. You've got to keep moving. Friends, when the gospel comes to you, when the power of Christ risen from the grave enters your life, the only thing that cannot happen is for you to be stagnant and to say, stay still. You have to move. You have to move upward and respond in worship. You have to move outward and serve and proclaim the good news of the gospel. That's what, what happens immediately after the resurrection on this first Easter. As R.T. France writes, the announcement of Jesus' resurrection is not an end in itself, but the basis for action. Friend, if you believe in a risen Christ, there should be some action in your life. As Matthew writes in his resurrection account, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, all authority in heaven and on earth 
has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you tell me that the resurrection has changed your everything, that you belong to Christ, that who you are has been crucified and you are now dead in Christ and you have been risen from the grave in Christ and you are a new creation and you have been raised to walk in newness of life, let me ask you, where is God moving you to action? What has he put in your life? What people has he put there for you to be moved by the gospel, to share the hope and the grace and the power that you've experienced through the resurrection so that they might too? Because if that power and grace is big enough to change your life based on who you used to be, it's big enough for them too. Friends, every disciple has this mission. It's not given just to the special elite Christians. If you belong to Christ, this is your call. Go tell. And as you do that, I want you to remember this last wonder. The last wonder I want you to see and experience this morning is the irony of the resurrection. The irony of the resurrection Look at verse 8. Mark writes, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Irony is one of those words we've kept coming back to over and over again. As the gospel presents an upside-down universe, That doesn't make any sense in our earthly way of thinking. And friends, Mark presents the resurrection as as one of irony. The irony remains. As you notice, the response to the empty tomb here in verse 8 is the same response the disciples had in the garden. Both when Judas betrays Jesus and when they hear about Jesus being risen from the grave, everyone runs. And as the entire book of Mark, the irony has been that as Jesus tells them to be quiet, at every wonder and miracle, they leave and tell everyone. But the minute Jesus rises from the grave and they're told to go and speak, they keep their mouths shut. Isn't it ironic? Again, one of the things this is doing is it's proving Mark's not making this up. It's a bad ending. But what it does, friends, is it points to the reality of the Christian life that you and I know so well. We are living in between two advents. The first advent has happened. Jesus has come and been born. Jesus has died and risen again. But he said he's coming back and we're waiting for the second advent. And there's this time in between. When we studied Mark 13, we called it the already, not yet. Jesus has already rose from the grave, but he has not yet come back so that you and I could rise from our grave. That's still coming. 
story, just like last week, still isn't over. James Edwards writes, The resurrection does not magically dispel our weaknesses and our fears. The fact of the empty tomb does not automatically overcome our ability to sin. That's why, even though we have this unshakable, imperishable hope kept in heaven for us, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's a hallmark chapter, Romans chapter 8, about how we're not in condemnation. We have the power of Christ, the grace of Christ. And yet here he's talking about how we groan inwardly, waiting for Christ to come back and, and give us the full picture of his promise. Paul's saying this, the resurrection is 100% true, but so is pain. Hope is 100% true, and you should celebrate, but so is sorrow, and so is suffering, and so is temptation, and so is heartbreak, so is groaning. What in your life is causing you to groan? What dark cloud is looming and just will keep this holiday season from feeling like a time to celebrate it all? The gospel would call you to do two things. Look back to the empty tomb, to the empty tomb of Christ, and look forward to your empty tomb when Christ returns again. That's why Romans chapter 8 ends with the encouragement that neither death nor life nor anything else will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This passage leaves us much like the table of communion does. Stuck in the middle, in the irony between the advents, we celebrate and look back at what Jesus Christ did on the cross in his resurrection but we anticipate what Jesus will do when he returns and invites us to that banquet table again. Friends, as you get your Thanksgiving turkey ready on Thursday, as you start to hang your lights around the house and do whatever you do to celebrate the holidays, just remember, if this is not true, if Jesus did not rise again, you're wasting your time. There is no reason to celebrate. If you should celebrate anything, you should celebrate Hanukkah because you're still waiting for God to answer his promises. But because Jesus is alive, friend, break out the good stuff. We cannot celebrate this gospel enough. Jesus is alive. Long live the King. Let's pray.